Thank you, Loretta. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for the opportunity to come before you in worship. We ask your blessing on this time as we reflect on your word and try to understand a new way for us to live and follow you. Amen. We've heard the phrase Monday morning quarterback, right? Or, or maybe the phrase hindsight is 2020. There were a lot of jokes about that phrase when our calendars were turning over to this new year. But of course, the original or usual use of that phrase has nothing to do with the year, but a vision. Things that weren't obvious in the moment become more clear once we're removed, once the choices or the situation are in our past. The Monday morning quarterback in all of us finds it easy and convenient to look back and see the things we could have done or others could have done or maybe should have done differently. But also we have the ability after the fact or outside of the emotions of a situation to understand things a little more, to gain broader context. The shift of perspective to get the more complete story, the fuller landscape, it helps us to connect the dots more completely than we might otherwise. In many ways, we're Monday morning quarterbacks when we examine the gospel texts and the interactions that people have with Jesus. But the interesting thing about the Gospels, and I shared this a few weeks ago a little bit, is that they were written essentially to an audience not so dissimilar from us, an after-the-fact audience. The disciples and their experiences with Jesus are on display in the Gospels for us, just as the first listeners, to analyze and process as a whole, and maybe even at times question. I can't tell you how often I'm still surprised when I read something in the Bible where my eyes go big and I think, why did they say that? What were they thinking when they did that? A few weeks ago, we looked at the complicated and mysterious account of the transfiguration of Christ on the mountaintop in front of Peter and the other two disciples. And in that text, Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses and the appearance of Jesus changes dramatically. They hear an angelic voice, and Peter seems to be confused about what's going on. In fact, the scripture even says that Peter is awestruck and doesn't know what to do. Peter's experience with Jesus on the mountaintop becomes even more interesting when we look at the fact that it comes right after this morning's gospel lesson that you just heard from Loretta. And then, even more surprising, is when we go back just a little bit more a little bit further in Mark's gospel to the story right before this one, where Peter declares in response to a question from Jesus, he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. If you read this morning's devotional by Reverend Rebecca McClintock, it looks at that scripture. And so I'd encourage you to look at that scripture. So this morning's lesson is sandwiched between Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and Peter's Uh, bewildering experience of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. But even before looking at these two scenes and the one in the middle, we have to go way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel. Because Mark's gospel introduces itself as being from the outset a way for Mark to implement his goal, his thesis, his objective, 
of proclaiming the identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. So Mark's gospel then unfolds from the beginning, telling the story of what Jesus and the disciples were doing. And up until our reading this morning, most of the gospel is an account of the things that Jesus had done, who Jesus had encountered, what has happened when he's encountered them. Jesus heals, he gathers large crowds, and he feeds the hungry. He teaches about caring for others. He brings back people from the dead. He feeds even more people. He walks on water. He calms storms. And he does all of these things in front of and with the disciples. And even with large crowds gathering. Mark lays out all of this. And it culminates in that declaration by Peter. That that yes, in answer to Jesus asking him, who do you say that I am? Peter declares, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. But we quickly learn that Peter doesn't understand what that even means. The Monday morning quarterback in me, the hindsight 2020 perspective, wants to look at Peter and these disciples and shake my head. How do you not get it? But then I have to stop. I have to stop myself and give them a break. For a couple reasons. One, I need to give them a break because I need a break. We all need a break. We all need a pause too, a, a pause to reflect on this question that Jesus asked Peter. Who do you think I am? Before I judge the disciples in their moment, I need to ask this question of myself now. This is, in fact, our Lenten question, or even the question of our lives, our very identities as followers of Christ. Who do we say that Jesus is? And then the companion question. What does it mean? What does it mean for our lives? We see the disciples wrestling with these very questions in our scripture lesson this morning. Peter has acknowledged who Christ is. Up until this point, and as I've said, the ministry of Jesus at set, as, as it was set forth in Mark's gospel, it's been, it's been about showing the transforming love of God. But Jesus hasn't touched much on who he is. And when people figure out who he is, he tells them to be quiet. And people wondered for sure who this man was, who this man who was doing these strange things but societally and in that culture, there, there was also a belief or, or at least rumors and understanding that there were people who could do these strange things, people who could perform healings, people who were some combination of magician, conjurer, doctor, healer. I call them all agents of the wow. Sure, the people were surprised by Jesus and maybe even confused, maybe he didn't look like the agents of WOW that they were used to hearing about and seeing, or maybe they had only heard rumors of them and never even saw them. And so these people are drawn in, but they're not connecting Jesus as Messiah, in large part because that term, Messiah, it it means anointed, anointed, one who is anointed or blessed or set apart. And this term throughout Jewish history had been reserved for three types of people, prophets, priests, 
and kings. Not healers and teachers and friends, which is what they were encountering in Jesus. Now, the interesting thing with hindsight being 2020 is that we can and, and should analyze who Jesus would turn out to be when we see the whole picture and we see that Jesus was all three of those, that he is all three of those, prophet, priest, and king. But even then, he wasn't the prophet, the priest, or the king that anyone was expecting. And so when they encountered him, yes, they were surprised and even inspired and wowed by him. Remember, he drew large crowds that continually grew. But they weren't getting behind the wow. So Jesus takes just his disciples away. And that's the question he asks. Who do the crowds say that I am? And it's clear that the crowds are definitely wondering who this man is. And then Peter makes that declaration that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. For the first time, Jesus then shares the first of three times that he will be treated very much not like a Messiah. Remember, a, a prophet, a priest, a king, those who are revered. But he'll instead be treated like a criminal, convicted like a criminal, killed like a criminal. And Peter gets angry about this, and he's, and he's confused. And Jesus tries for the first of many times to make things more clear. And again, looking back, Knowing what we know about the rest of Christ's life and about Christ's death and resurrection, even with a basic Sunday school knowledge, we might want to question Peter's confusion. Why doesn't he get it? But again, isn't Peter's confusion so often our own confusion, our own perplexity at the identity and role of Christ? We understand Jesus and his good works and his good teaching. But Jesus, in his words to his disciples, begins to reveal so much more about himself and about God right in this text. Jesus says to these disciples and to you and me, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, you have to really, really, really follow Okay, so that's my interpretation of the text. These disciples, they've already decided to follow Jesus, right? They've been with him through all of these wow moments I've described. They've, they've been his partners in ministry. But now Jesus is saying that there is something a little bit more. That, that being a follower of Jesus means willing to be changed, being called upon to take action in our own lives, being a follower of the Messiah, the anointed one, right? The prophet, the priest, and the king. Being a follower of the one who will be killed on a cross means being willing to face the crosses of our own lives, the things that stand in the way of our own individual ability to love like Christ, being willing to encounter our own suffering, our own burdens, the areas of our lives that we'd sometimes rather ignore and move away from. A willingness to face our crosses and still yet follow Christ, to pick up our crosses of our illness or our anxiety, our fear, our anger, 
to pick up our crosses of shattered dreams and broken hearts, to bring your cross to Jesus, and to also face the crosses of our society, the, the crosses of homelessness and of hunger, the crosses of violence, the crosses of hatred and of division and of idolatry, the crosses of abuse and the crosses of systemic injustices and difficult histories that are hard to reckon with, and all of these crosses that seem to threaten our faith. You see, Jesus never says that our lives will be without threats to our faith or even our very living. He never says that our lives will be without pain. Jesus never says that everything will be perfect and comfortable and easy. He never says any of that. And yet, Far too often, people leave the church when these crosses come at them or, or when they see the church silent in the face of societal crosses or the crosses in their lives as though we want to just ignore them, to be happy. Jesus doesn't say, walk away from your cross and follow me. Jesus says, walk away from your nets the places of comfort, places of reliability and resources. Walk away from your nets and follow me. But Jesus says, pick up your cross, take up your cross, carry your cross on your shoulders and follow me. And follow me. We can't miss that part. Follow me. We don't carry our own crosses alone. Follow me. And this, my friends, is an invitation to what we call discipleship. That's what it means to follow. This invitation to discipleship is our, it's our Lenten and our lifetime journey. Coupled with that first question, who is Jesus? Then our next question, what does it mean to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus? What does discipleship mean? Theologian Frederick Beekner writes that a part of discipleship is searching for the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Following Jesus means examining our lives and asking ourselves how we fit into the world, seeking to bring the healing of Christ, seeking to bring the healing of Christ. It's that place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. A part of discipleship is bringing our wounded selves under the weight of the heavy crosses that we carry into the footsteps of Christ. And it means also seeing those ways that we might bring our gifts and our heart and our resources and our abilities into the world's crosses to walk with Christ who carries their burdens to carry those crosses with Christ. Discipleship means integrating your actions and intentions 
with better understanding of what it means to follow this one who invites us to change our expectations and our understandings of God's hope for us, God's intention for us, God's intention for you. Jesus makes it clear in this morning's gospel and indeed throughout the gospels that discipleship, following Jesus, means going into those parts of the world, the, the places of the world which lead us to the cross of Christ, the places and to the people where Christ went. Discipleship, searching for the place of the world's deep hunger, carrying into those places our crosses, serving Christ and serving the world. On our Lenten journey, may we be about this work of carrying our crosses and carrying the crosses of the world around us, taking up our crosses and following the one who walks alongside us and with us and who leads us and in the midst of all that we will encounter in the world. And may we be willing to follow Christ where Christ goes and knowing in all of it, in our Lenten journey, in our faith journey, in our walk to the cross, our kneeling at the empty tomb, in all of this, we are never alone. And we are following the anointed one, the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, and the king, the one who stands up to injustices, who proclaims release to the captives, who wipes away your tears, who understands and knows the cross you carry. The one who knows that carrying crosses isn't easy. The one who doesn't let crosses win. The one who won't let your crosses or the crosses of the world win. The one who believes the power of an empty tomb is always greater than the pain of any cross. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. And may you find meaning in this one whose love for you knows no limits and from whom you cannot be separated and from this one who desires your companionship on the journey. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.